Welcome to this uh, second session of our, our monthly series, a series that is going to go for nine months. And this is the Sacred Heart Apologetics series uh, in, um, uh, with our, our very special uh, presenter, uh, Mr. Raymond de Souza. Uh, have I pronounced your surname correctly, Raymond? Yes, you have. That's fine. That will that's, do. That's, that's very good. That's very good. Well, welcome and thank you for joining us. Uh, those of you who saw last month's uh, session will notice something about this one, and that is that I am not Charbel Reich. Uh, my name is Matthew Herman Tague. I do work for Parisia. I work with Charbel. Uh, Shawal is expecting uh, baby number eight very, very soon. And so his, uh, his life has become uh, very busy. And so I offered to take the next couple of months off his hands. So uh, apologies to the, to the listeners and to Raymond. You're, you're going to be stuck with me for a little while. Okay. Uh, now, this, this uh, series is a joint production between uh, Sacred Heart Media, of which, of course, Raymond is the founder, and of Perusia, and it is also now a joint production with EWTN Asia Pacific, and uh, we thank all those who are now involved in this project. And, of course, this series is now going to be hosted on Perusia World, our new online Catholic community where we showcase the best that the Catholic world has to offer in the form of all of our wonderful Perusia partners of which Sacred Heart Media is one. Well, Raymond, we're going to jump in now. And last month we covered a little bit uh, about uh, Sister Alacoc and we covered the first promise of the Sacred Heart. And we also looked at the apologetic topic of relativism. But we're going to jump now into promise number two. Would you tell us what promise number two is? Yes. Um, our Lord appeared to Santa Margaret Mary Lacoque in the 1600s, and he uh, gave her 12 promises. The second one is when he said, uh, I will establish peace in their families. Mm. Now, let that sink in. Why should he mention the importance of families? You may know that uh, in Fatima, mm. Sister Lucia, the last seer of the uh, apparitions of Fatima, she said that the devil's last battle would be against the family. The family. The family is the, is the uh, um, cellular matter of society. Without the family, there is no society. There's not even church, as Pope John Paul II mentions, that the, the church passes by the way of the family. Mm -hmm. And today, in every other country in the planet, the family is under attack. We have the promotion of the contraception, of abortion, of euthanasia, of in vitro fertilization, of surrogated wombs, of uh, so-called... Um, uh, homosexual union, everything is aimed to destroy the family institution. And by family, we talk about the union between one man and one woman to last for life and open to have children. This concept is now under attack everywhere in the world. For you guys in Australia and here also in America. There's a, with the, our current president, uh, the unelected uh, Joe Biden, we have the systematic effort to destroy the family. Well, there are 
thank God there are a couple of countries in the, in the world that defend the family. I've have had some contact with people in Hungary, in Poland, in Paraguay, very few countries, but those maintain the governments do their best to maintain the family. That is the concept we must promote as Catholics, promote the concept of the family from the point of view of natural law. It is not a matter of religion, it's a matter of natural law. When you see, for example, the very first thing that God said to Adam and Eve was be fruitful and multiply. That is the idea. Unfortunately, nowadays, we have an absolute denial of the values of the family. When the, our Lord said, I will establish peace in your families, let us define a peace. Mm. From the Catholic point of view, from the Christian point of view, peace is not just the absence of conflict. The Catholic Catechism explains very well that peace is the tranquility of order. When things are in order and there is tranquility, that we have the peace of Christ. Yeah. Our Lord himself says it very clearly. He says, I will, I will leave you peace. I will give you my peace. And somewhere else he says, I will not, I, be, I have not brought, brought peace, but the sword and division. So you have the peace of Christ and the peace of the world. The peace of the world wants to have just tranquility. Like, for example, in an abortion clinic, where you have one baby killed after another, and that's all right, there's no conflict, no problem. Or in a concentration camp in China, all the slaves work properly, and there is no, no need for, for controversy. Even in a cemetery, everything is very quiet, very peaceful, but everything is dead. No, the point is then that uh, to have peace, the peace of Christ that our Lord wants to instill in their families, we must have tranquility of order. So when the parents do their duties, when the father is the protector, the guide, the head of the family, when the mother is nurturer, loving mother that helps the children, when the children are obedient to their parents, when they understand why they, their institution, that family, must be maintained, then we have our Lord promises peace. That's the second promise of the sacred heart of Jesus. I will establish peace in their families. But, there is always a but, people must be real devotees of the sacred heart. That is to say, imitate his virtues. When he says, um, learn from me for I'm meek and humble of heart. Some people confuse meekness with weakness and the humility with mediocrity, not at all. So it will be important to study more in the Catholic Catechism, the meaning of uh, the peace of Christ that will be fundamental. That's the first concept about the, uh, to give to you about the, uh, the promise of the sacred heart of Jesus. We take now the mm. question of uh, apologetics. Yeah, this is, this is wonderful. If I, if I may dwell for a moment on, on the concept that you're revealing to us, um, the fact that, uh, that peace is an objective reality that isn't necessarily related to our feelings. 
Uh, I've discovered recently that, that joy is another one, that even a, a, a man of sorrows, a man who goes through much suffering, uh, and I put myself up as an example, I'm a, I'm a pain sufferer. I have a crush fracture of T12 and L1 in my spine, and I go to sleep every night in pain, and I wake up every day in pain. Uh, but even a man of, of sorrows and pain can experience peace in his life and the joy of Christ because these concepts are not necessarily related to how we feel, that they're objective concepts. Is, isn't this true? Definitely, yes, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So basically our feelings sometimes lie, don't they, Raymond? <laughs> 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 and this is also a very important concept um, that we need to remember when um, celebrating our liturgy, that, yes. uh, that liturgy itself is an objective concept and not necessarily about how we feel uh, mm -hmm. and, or, or what we like, because God himself is the one who tells us how he is to be worshipped for our benefit. Yeah. And also, even to mention the liturgy, the liturgy of the earth is supposed to reflect the liturgy of heaven. That's why we say in the Our Father, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So then uh, in our parish, we should ask ourselves, how is God worshipped in heaven? What level of dignity, of sacrality, of greatness exists in heaven so that our liturgy here on earth can be literally peaceful and uh, agreeable to, to God? Amen. I couldn't agree more. Okay. <laughs> so as, you, as you mentioned, uh, so we've, we've covered the, the second of the 12 promises, and now we move on to our apologetics uh, topic. Um, could we dwell a moment on the word apologetics? Because yes. I'm sure there's some people out there who think that uh, what we're doing is apologizing. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, that's not really the meaning of apologetics, no. is it, right. It's like, uh, like my saying that, well, I'm sorry, but I'm a Roman Catholic, you know. My father was an Irishman. My mother was Italian. So I'm stuck with it. I'm sorry. Nothing to do with this. <laughs> Apologetic is a biblical term. It comes from St. Peter's first epistle, chapter 3, verse 15, when he said we must be, always pre be prepared to uh, convey an explanation, a, a reasonable defense of our faith to people of our hope. Now, the word in Greek that he uses, apologia, is where we take the word apologetics. Unfortunately, in the English language, we have both meanings, apologizing and apologetics. But the basic idea the is to defend the faith. I'm a Knight of Malta, and one of the two purposes of the Knights of Malta is to defend the faith. That's what we do, or at least what we should do. And I am one of those who uh, promote the twistio fide of the defense of the faith, as we do it uh, in these presentations mm -hmm. with Sacred Heart Media, with um, Parousta Media, and IWTN. Yeah, excellent, excellent. The so topic is then, how do we know that there is a God? How do we know that? Yes, because um, you're, going, you're going to mount a defense now, if apologetics means to yeah. mount a defense. You're about to defend God himself. Defend his existence. Excellent. We, uh, if uh, I remember some years ago, I was, in, I was in Australia, in Perth, where I used to live. I was giving a talk in a, in a, in a high school for boys and, uh, about this topic. And at the end of the talk, one of the boys came to me and said, uh, 
Mr. Jesus, I know where you are coming from. You don't believe in God. You know there is a God. I said, quite right. My belief as a result of faith, I believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Blessed Trinity, the Eucharist, the Confession, etc. Et that is belief that I give to my revelation that was given to me by the Holy Mother Church. But that there, is, that there is a God? Oh, no. I know it. How do I know? The simple fact that I know what I am, I know there is a God. Let's get some examples. Um, we know we don't have to believe in the opinion of scientists. For example, that Louis Pasteur, who was a, a great Catholic, so I believe in God because Pasteur believe in it? No. Or other um, scientists who disagree with God's existence. So I don't believe in God because they disagree. No. My belief in God or my knowledge of God cannot depend on other people's opinion. I may be able to figure out by myself. Last month in the talk about relativism, we discussed three ways of knowing anything. First one is to use our senses. I can see the light, I can see the rainbow, I can see that fire burns, my, I can feel it. My senses are very persuasive. I can see, I can hear, but unfortunately this is very limited. I don't go, only what I can see and hear, I know these things exist. Now, other times I know through history, that's called moral certitude. I know that Christopher Columbus came here to America and Captain Cook came to Australia. I know that, but I, I was not there. I was not a, uh, um, a witness. I did not see that. But I have the uh, trustworthy testimony of people who have come to us in history. But then you have another kind of certitude with a metaphysical certitude. I can figure out by myself. So let us leave aside the physical certitude, the, the moral certitude of history, and concentrate on the metaphysical one. I can know by myself. For example, I see there is a factory with, uh, they make bicycles. There is, I arrive there in the morning, there is a box full of bicycle parts. If I arrive there a month later, I see the bicycle ready. Do I have the right to suppose that this thing happened by itself? Of course not. We know that. Somebody did it. Why? Because the, the bicycle is in order. Let's say an example that's more, more cogent to us. Uh, I used to live in, in South Africa. That was years ago. And there was, uh, I came across a lot of, um, of uh, photos and uh, of um, Roth diamonds. When you see a Roth diamond, you don't give much value to it. It looks like a piece of, of, uh, of glass. But then when you see a diamond that is cut, like the diamonds in the, uh, in the British crown, which I also saw in, in, in London, can you suppose that the diamond appeared by itself that way? Of course not. If you see cut diamonds, if you see cut jewels, they're not alive. They're just in lifeless creatures, but they exist and somebody did it. 
Somebody cut the diamonds. There is not one single mine in the world that produces cut diamonds, except in that movie, uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, when the, the Seven Dwarfs, they were digging for, diamond, for diamonds and precious stones, and they came all neatly cut. But that is, of course, just a fairy tale. So when you see order, you know there is an order. You just know it. If you take, for example, uh, with animals, no, with plants. Okay, I'm Brazilian. I was born in Brazil. In Brazil, we have uh, the Amazon jungle. And the, uh, pretty much all over the place, the plants grow in all directions. It's a big problem there. They, they grow and just grow. It is very difficult to uh, even to open a, a path through the forest. But if you go to France and you see the gardens of Versailles, when the plants are so neatly organized in different colors, different designs, what do you conclude? That the plants in uh, France are better educated than the ones in Brazil? Not at all. You know that somebody did it, a gardener. Evidently, you, you don't know who the person was, but you know that the gardener exists and who did that work. Then what you see there, order. When uh, order presupposes an orderer, somebody who, to do it. Taking animals, for example, I remember when I was in Australia, I saw that movie, uh, A Man from a Snowy River. And there were lots of wild animals, wild horses there. And they were really, you could not hold those horses. They were very, very wild. But in Vienna, I went to see the uh, Spanish school of, uh, of training horses. And you see the most incredible thing. There is a music played by an orchestra and the, the horses do the prancing to the side, to the other side. Incredible. Now try to do that with the, the wild horse of Australia. You never do it. Why? It needs a mind, an intellect to train the horses. In this case, in, the, in Vienna, the horses are, there are several generations of horses that are trained. It is not possible for you to do that with the wild horses because it needs a trainer, somebody with a mind and lots of patience to train those horses. Take with people, do you know that, um, that uh, um, orchestra from uh, Holland, um, André Rieu, who is an incredibly beautiful orchestra. They, they have all kinds of instruments, it's very beautiful. If you go to the street and call everybody, come on folks, let's make a, an, an orchestra. Mm. Unless they come from André Rieu, they will not be able to play the instruments. They are not being trained. So André Rieu has a beautiful performance with his orchestra because there is order. Likewise, you take a look at the space, the, uh, the stars. Everything works like clockwork, literally like clockwork. Why? Who are they intelligent, these planets and asteroids? No, they are not. But they follow specific laws. And that's the second point. You cannot find a law without a lawmaker. 
who made these laws? Scientists, they don't make the, law, the natural law. They discover it. I, remember, I was reading some time ago about um, how the folks from NASA here in the States, they send a, um, a probe to Pluto. So they discover that if they send the probe, the probe to Mercury, the other direction, they can take... <laughs> Uh, make use of the uh, of the gravitational pull of Mercury to send the probe to. How do they know that? It beats me, of course. That is, they discovered the laws of movement in the universe. Now, so I'm not talking about the Bible here, not about religion here. You have order and you have laws. The universe is full of laws. There are thousands of laws. There are biological, chemical, chemical, physics, astrophysics, all sorts of laws. Who made these laws? There is no way you can't you can't say, well, it, it is there. Is it just made by themselves? Of course not. By themselves, nature would not organize itself in order. Another thing to, to bear in mind is that uh, the universe is not eternal. We have here all discussions about when the universe began. I have no opinion on that. All I know is that it began. One day, the day before that, there was nothing. On that day, it existed. And then we ask the basic question, who made it? Oh, there are all kinds of theories, but it, didn't, it could not create itself. That's a basic principle of sanity. Nothing can create itself. To create, you must first be able to exist before your creation. It, it just doesn't happen. Nothing can create itself. Then you can say the usual, uh, who created God? That is a, a fallacy because we suppose that God was created. If God was created, then he was not God. There was someone before him. And then so on and on and on and on until there, but there is not, cannot be eternal. At some stage, there was a first being, a first cause. We are all effects. You cannot have an effect without a cause. Mm. And God, our Lord, is the, the one we call cause, the, mm. the first cause. And in, in philosophy, this is uh, that they refer to, to uh, God as being the uncaused cause. Is that correct? Yes, yeah. correct. Yeah, exactly. Then, so summarizing, order is the exclusive, exclusive creation of intellectual mind. Only an intellectual mind can do things in order. If you see uh, um, a game of chess, you know somebody did it. You see a painting, you see anything. If it is in order, somebody did it. The universe is, is a marvelous order. Somebody did it. We call that somebody God. Likewise with the um, laws of the universe. There are millions of laws. It's incredible. The uh, law of gravitation works. If you don't believe it, try to jump off a building. See what happens. That if there is an, a law, there is a lawmaker. You see, I'm not using philosophical argument. It's just a plain common sense that any Tom, Dick, and Harry can come to this conclusion without having any, any problem of conscience with this. Then we have also another aspect in science. 
which you see in thermodynamics. Uh, I try to, try to simplify the whole thing. Whenever you see an engine, a car, that's a proof that the second law of thermodynamics works. Let's see how it is. There are two basic laws of thermodynamics, the ones that interest us most here. The first one is the about the preservation of energy. In the universe, in the energy of the universe is not created, is not destroyed, it is transformed. Say, for example, you have um, enough a dam with a, uh, to fabricate to create electricity. The energy of movement of the water will make the turbine turn around, which produces electricity. That electricity goes to the houses and will uh, light a, a television or work with a, a telephone or a computer. And then it becomes heat and it becomes unutilizable. Mm -hmm. The basic principle is that at the beginning of the universe, the entropy, that's the name used, the entropy of the universe, the energy was perfect. Immediately thereafter, the energy becomes used. And there's no way you can remake the original energy. Entropy goes on always. So that's why we say, and anybody knows that, that uh, the, one day the stars, the sun, is going to uh, be put out, just like uh, a candle. The difference between a candle and uh, the sun is the amount of energy. The sun will take billions and billions of years, and um, a, a candle takes a, a few hours, but it will end. So the whole heat in the, uni in the universe the whole, is going to become, at some stage, billions of years from now, we will reach a certain level and the universe will come to an end, literally speaking. It may come, life will disappear and everything else. We are, it reminds me of the, when a teacher in, in a primary school explained to the kids that the sun will be put out and that the earth will be cold and life will come to an end. One kid said, when will this happen? When will this happen? And she said, well, it's about... 1500 billion years from now. <laughs> oh, said the boy. I thought you said 100 million years. <laughs> what difference does it make? <laughs> what difference <laughs> does it make? So then, the fact that the, the energy of the universe is coming to an end shows that in the beginning, somebody made it. Energy don't make itself. That's something that uh, we take it for granted. That's the first law of thermodynamics, that in, in the energy is not created, is not uh, destroyed, it transforms. But if it's not created, how come it is there? How come it is there so much? Somebody created that energy. The second law of thermodynamics explains that uh, the energy is coming at, at the direction where the energy goes goes towards a diminution of energy. As I mentioned before, it goes towards death. Uh, the basic principle is all natural processes in, in reality, all the natural processes tend to disorder and not order. If you leave the plants without a garden, they, they take over in a, in a confusing way. If you leave the animals without a trainer, 
they go back to the to the uh, to the savage state. Uh, take the the if there is nobody to guide people, they tend to become uh, have Indians and the hippies today become and so on and so forth. So then the uh, the basic principle is this: that uh, the cycle of thermodynamics shows that uh, energy is being used and will come to an end. Then you take, for example, movement. Um, I remember when, when I was in, in school, we learned that everybody knows this, there's a property of matter called um, inertia, mm. that a, a body cannot start a movement or stop a movement without an outside force. That's why, for example, you take a ball and you run over the, the uh, surface, it's going to stop for three reasons, either because there is a gravity or two, there is a friction with the floor, three, can hit some other object. But if you do that in space, an astronaut threw that in space, it goes on and on and on until it hits something. Now, because for a body to start a movement, you must be a, a force from the outside to move it. In the case of the floor, you have three forces there, gravity, friction, and obstacle. In the space, there's none of this, perhaps just obstacle. But you see all these movements, all the moon around the earth, and the, we all are on the sun and everything else. How can this movement have started? Someone gave it movement. A force outside of the universe gave its movement. Likewise, when you see the, uh, the electrons moving around the, uh, the nucleus of an atom, how did it start that movement? According to the basic natural law and law of inertia, which we believe in, we believe in this law, there should not be the movement, but there is, because somebody gave that movement. So you see, when you consider the order of the universe, you consider the laws of the universe, and the movement of the universe. All these three elements presuppose necessarily an orderer to establish order, a uh, uh, lawmaker to establish the laws, and a first mover to start the movement of the universe. That's the, because all spontaneous natural transformations, the total entropy of the universe always increases. And when increases, losing energy until the end. Then you can say that the universe cannot explain itself without a creator, orderer, and mover. Hmm. We can know this, and now we can talk about another time, whether or not, how did this God speak to mankind? That's another story. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that's another story. But that is not the point we are, we are taking here. We are taking specifically uh, natural law, common sense, which every person, any person, can come to this conclusion. It is not uh, a matter of belief. It is a matter of knowledge that there is a God, creator, orderer, governor, and a mover. Mm. That simplifies the whole thing. Huh? 
Wonderful. You've, uh, you've given us a, a lot to think about there, there Raymond. And uh, yeah, it does. Um, so it seems to, to me that uh, wherever we have these objective realities uh, in our universe, that there, there is something beyond them. There's an objective reality beyond yeah. them. And, and, and this we call God. And, uh, and everything that is good, true and beautiful stems from him, including creation. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there are arguments out there for, um, for an eternal universe. Um, we, with current science shows that this, this universe does have a beginning and an end. And then you've got, uh, but you have scientists that come up with multiverse theories of, of varying kinds. But even if they could prove this, and they can't, <laughs> especially with the science we have now, even if someone came along and proved that the, that the universe was in some way eternal, it, it still doesn't answer the question of why is there something instead of nothing, right? Mm -hmm. Because yes. even if the universe is eternal, it still needs an eternal creator, doesn't it, by the exactly. principles you've just outlined? Unless, unless people come to the mistake of believing that the universe is divine. Mm. So the universe is God. That is a complete absurdity because it does not explain a number of things, including evil, etc., etc. <clears throat> but the possibility of proving that the universe is eternal, thermodynamics is against it. The basic two basic laws, the first and the second law of thermodynamics, which every scientist accepts that because it's reality. These laws refute completely the, uh, the idea of the universe being eternal, completely. When you see a supernova, a star that the, burns itself out, that's a symbol of the whole universe. Sooner or later, it will burn itself out. Mm. That's the, uh, the creation, life in, the, in, in, in this creation is limited. Just as we are, as humans, we are limited. We are a symbol of the whole universe. We begin and we come to an end. That is, a, and the fact that we believe in eternal life is also as a natural instinct in man. We, nobody wants to die unless you are so miserable, so unhappy that you see death as a, as a lesser evil. But the, the, for the normal people, we don't, we don't want to die. We want to live on. There, there must be something after that. We'll be talking about this another time. Yes, and, and even the great Albert Einstein, um, he fought very hard for a long time for an eternal universe. It's now become known as Einstein's biggest blunder. And of <laughs> course, convincing Einstein of what we now know as the Big Bang was, was none other than a Catholic priest physicist, George Lemaitre. And uh, even if so, if, if even Albert Einstein can eventually come to the same conclusion we have today, that the universe is not, not eternal, then it's, it's, it really is worth the rest of us considering that as well. Yes, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what would you recommend, Raymond, to, to anyone who wants to delve more deeply into this particular subject? Where, where would they go to find out uh, more about the proofs for the existence of God? I have, uh, there is a, I had the opportunity when I was in Australia to produce that course of apologetics, mm. which we have, uh, they can be obtained from uh, Barusia Media, mm. where they have uh, 68 different lessons on everything, beginning with proof of objective reality 
and proofs of God's existence. But of course, apart from this, there are other there are books that you can based on St. Thomas Aquinas, based on Aristotle, come to the conclusion that uh, there is a God. It is not, not a matter of, of opinion, of belief, which means that those people who insist in being atheists mm. is a, a poor souls. Mm. They are unreasonable. They may dispute the divinity of Christ. They dispute that as the Jews do. May dispute the Eucharist as Protestants do. This can be, uh, there can be arguments to show that uh, why we believe that. Mm. But God's existence, I know. We yeah. know there is God. Yeah. And, and quite often the atheists do make the, um, the mistake or, or rather the logical fallacy known as the straw man argument where they create a caricature of the argument and then attack the caricature and, yes, yes. and, and offer it as, as proof of defeating the opponent's argument. And, and so often um, atheists will do this with the proof of um, God's existence. Protestants will so often employ this method when attacking the Catholic Church as well. And so I'm, I'm thinking really of Richard Dawkins' uh, spaghetti monster and the flying around in the sky, you know, to believe in God is to, to believe in, in that. And the straw man fallacy that they usually go for is that God is just the biggest bully in the sky. But as we've shown tonight through, through um, you laying out these principles for us in a very easy to understand way, that the God is not something in the universe. God is outside the universe. He is the cause of the universe. And the universe really exists within him, doesn't it? And we have the, the marvelous order that you'll find in the universe. It's incredibly beautiful. Mm. Presupposes a great mind to put them in order. The um, multiplicity of laws, of scientific laws, of uh, physics, astrophysics, chemistry, et cetera, et cetera, presupposes a great lawmaker mm. to make it. And the movement in the universe presupposes a first mover. There's no, no way out of this. The, uh, all the people can say, well, I don't believe in it. Well, that's, uh, that's your problem because it's not a matter of belief. Is a matter of knowledge. Mm. This is uh, fides et ratio, isn't it? Yes. Faith and reason that we're talking about. So next month, we're going to talk about the third promise of the sacred heart. And what's the apologetics subject that we're going to be talking about? Is it revelation? We, we will believe, we will study that uh, if the gospels are trustworthy, mm. should we, why do we believe the gospels? if they are trustworthy. And then after that, we study the divinity of Jesus Christ. That is a, the, uh, the most uh, fundamental aspect of Christianity, that Christ is God and man. After that, we see the resurrection. St. Paul says it clear that uh, if Christ had not risen, our faith would be in vain. So let's see. Well, anyway, and then we move on, move on to the Catholic Church, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Excellent, excellent. Well, I know you have a, a dedication to Our Lady, and you've mentioned Fatima tonight, and I have a particular devotion to Fatima. So I think we should end uh, with a Hail Mary and a, a Glory Be. Yes. So I'll uh, I'll lead that for us in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners 
now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Gloria Patris et Filio et Spiritui Sancto. Secretarat in principio et nunc et semper et in secula seculorum. Amen. Amen. We will add a bit of Latin, but the same Holy Spirit. We we should have we we should ha always have a bit of Latin. It is the language yeah, of the church, yeah. after all. <laughs> actually, actually, I have um, years ago there was a meeting of um, an annual meeting of EWTN, mm. and I was there, and the the superior, the mother superior that uh, replaced Mother Teresa, Mother Angelica, she was there, and somebody asked her. Do you like the Mass in Latin? And she said, yes, I do. Mm. And the question was, why? And she said, it's very simple. According to the exorcism, the exorcist, the devil hates Latin. If he hates Latin, I love it. I found this a beautiful, beautiful this is, argument. This is an excellent reason. Yes, that's a yeah, great excellent reason. reason. If the devil hates it, I love it. That's it. <laughs> excellent. Well, uh, Raymond de Souza, thank you so much for your time. And uh, I know I personally will look forward uh, to interviewing you again uh, next month. So, my pleasure. Thank you very much. Goodbye and God bless. God bless you.